0: want to say good morning to you all. Certainly a blessed opportunity to be here in the house of the Lord. That is amongst the saints, amongst those that have put on their hearts and minds to come together, to meet, to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. It is a delightful opportunity. It is a Delightful privilege to be able to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. We need never to take lightly this opportunity, this privilege, and this obligation that we as Christians have to our God. This month we have been dealing with the concept of reception. The concept of reception. I'm not... Discussing a football topic, making reference to something of what people were referred to as the immaculate reception, but rather our reception to Christ. Receiving Christ is how we began this month. Receiving Christ, if you remember in John, the first chapter, specifically at verse number 12, when John was making reference to this word. He's tracking this word that has been with God since the beginning. This word that would be the light and the life of men. This word being able to put on flesh in verse 14. But embedded in John, the first chapter, you see that we have the ability to be able to receive the word, which is Christ. At verse number 12. We see that as many as would receive Christ to him, would he give the power to be the sons of God, especially those that would believe on his name. We opened up this topic of receiving Christ. We need to make clear delineations in our lives. I understand in the larger scale of what people would call Christendom or Christianity Many individuals would have their take at what it means to be a Christian, what it means to put on Christ, or what it means to even be saved. But we need not to lean on our own understanding, but we need to stop thinking so hard and start thinking a little smarter when it comes to how we would receive Christ. Understanding that we have the power to be the sons and the daughters of God if we would just receive Christ and believe on his name. Furthermore, we continue to discuss and not only receiving Christ, but receiving the words that Christ has given. I think about Matthew, the 28th chapter, specifically at verses 18 through 20, where in that great commission, Christ would, in his resurrected glory, be able to explain to his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples of all nations. Teaching them after you're baptizing them, but teaching them to obey all things, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We see the importance of this because Christ receiving the words directly from God, the father is now setting out this commission for individuals to not only receive him, but receive the words. Because in so as far as receiving the words that Christ preached, they would be receiving God, the father. They are to go out into all the world and tell nations what they must do. In order to belong to Christ, they must tell nations what they must do in order to be able to reap the eternal blessings that are in Christ. We discuss receiving Christ. We discuss receiving the word. And last week we discussed tracking some of the Proverbs writings, how we must be wise as to be able to receive instruction. And so receiving instruction we put ourselves in the optimal place to be able to understand what God's will is. Just as a child ought to receive instruction from a father or a mother, we too must understand that we have an eternal father in heaven, which has given us instructions through his word. We must be able to receive the proper instruction so that our lives can be blessed. Furthermore, on top of receiving instruction last Lord's Day evening, we discussed receiving correction. How it's so important that we are not above reproof. You might remember what Proverbs, the ninth chapter specifically, at verse number eight would say. Where it says, a wise man. Or rather, you reprove a scorner. Reprove not a scorner, lest he will hate you. But if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. But later in Proverbs, the ninth chapter, at verse number nine, he discusses. The ability to be able to receive correction, how important it is for even your own souls, which he would mimic again in Proverbs, the 15th chapter. It is important that we put ourselves in a position to be able to receive instruction. Why is that important? When we think about us being able to obey the gospel. I love that song that the brother was singing. I think it was 291. For I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded. When we think about our obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, we had to have first been persuaded in order to be able to believe. And we've been persuaded by that wonderful word of God. We need not to be devoid of instruction because to be a Christian means that we are aware of what instruction implies. Being able to be taught of God. As John, the sixth chapter, specifically at verse 44 and 45, would describe. Nevertheless, we've received Christ. Perhaps some are striving to receive Christ. We need to understand we ought to receive his word. Being humble children, we ought to be able to receive instruction. And we ought to understand that receiving correction is for our benefit. That's what the Proverbs writer would say in Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, at verse number 13. Making reference to the father son or the father child or the parent child dynamic once again. Many of us who are younger might despise the idea of being corrected and being instructed. But that correction, as you would see in Proverbs the 23rd chapter, verse 13, where the Bible would say, Spare not the rod. In not sparing the rod to your child, you are able to preserve, you are able to deliver your child and his soul. It is for your child's benefit. If we want to call ourselves sons and daughters of God, we need to have a familiarity of this correction. I remember what Revelation, the third chapter, would say in verse number 19, making reference to the Lord and his correction. As many as the Lord loveth, he would rebuke and he would chasten it. It is so important. But now we get to the next topic and the next topic would be in reference to receiving a crown. Receiving a crown. It is so important when we understand our lives and we understand our fight in Christ Jesus, we must understand that we have a promise associated with this. This isn't just a monotonous task where we come every Wednesday, and perhaps some of you come on, or excuse me, Lord's Day, and every Wednesday to come and meet with the saints to be able to receive the instruction from God. But we must understand. That we have a promise associated with it. I think back in First Corinthians, the ninth chapter, which the brother just read unto your hearing. In First Corinthians, the ninth chapter, looking right there once again. In First Corinthians, the ninth chapter, as Paul is recounting his plight, he's recounting his ministry, he's recounting how he would preach the gospel. He would preach it to the Jew. He would preach it to the Gentile. He would preach it to the weak. He would preach it to all individuals, and he would put on the proper mindset. So that he could gain the more and over to Christ. But look at what he says in verse number 22. Or verse number 23. He says this I do for the gospel's sake. That I might be a partaker thereof with you. Says know you not they which run a race run all. But only one receives a prize. So run that you may obtain. Perhaps this is an antiquated notion. It used to be when you ran a race. There would be one victor. There would be one out on front. Nowadays, children participate and get a participation ribbon for everything. But nevertheless, it used to be in times past that when you would think about a marathon, when you think about a tournament, when you think about these physical exercises that one would attribute or strive for, there was one that was given that prize. All would certainly run, but one would receive that prize. Paul is likening this notion and he's saying you in your Christian faith run so that you may obtain. He says in verse 25, every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things, making reference to how your approach is to your practice, to what you diet and how you eat, to all the things that would gain the benefit to be able to obtain that prize. He's using this figurative point to liken it to our own Christian lives. Why is this important? He says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Think about that. You might think about an Olympic gold medalist. Make no mistake about it. That necklace or that ribbon with that piece of metal at the end, it is worth its weight in gold. It has a value. These people are striving so hard to be able to obtain this gold medal. But this medal is corruptible. Paul is likening our lives as one that would do the proper things to be able to obtain a crown that is incorruptible. So much better in Christ Jesus because we can obtain something that will never fade away. Think about all the gold medalists over the history of all the Olympians and over the history of all the Olympics. Some have gone, some have left this earth, some have gone on to die. Those crowns, those metals can't be taken with them. Over time, those metals will start to decay. Over time, those metals are going to be burnt up with every other element in this earth. Nevertheless, When we think about our Christian lives, we have something so much better that we can obtain. It's an incorruptible crown that fades not away. In verse 26, he says, so therefore I run. Not as uncertainty, so fight I. Not as one that beats the air. Paul is explaining that he's not doing it with a facade. He's not doing it fronting. He's not doing it in a fabricated way. But sincerely, he's training himself in running so that he may obtain something that may last forever. He says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself shall be a castaway. This is so important because in our articulation of God's word, we need to make sure we're not only preaching it, but also living it. He's saying he's temperate in all things, striving for the mastery, but he's not fighting as one that beats the air. When you think about a sparring match, when you think about maybe boxers that are preparing for the fight, it's not the actual fight. But Paul is saying in our own Christian lives, we are fighting a fight. It is genuine and it's authentic. We'll get to that position or we'll get to that point here later in Second Timothy. But nevertheless, we understand that our promise in this life is something that is incorruptible, something that will not fade away. When we think about this, we'll put a little bit of history on it. When we think about the concept of a crown being able to receive a crown, perhaps you think earlier to a time with Judah in Jerusalem, you might remember that in the law, God was encouraging his people to follow all of his ways. He was not giving his word to his people in vain. He was giving his word to his people for him to be correcting them, for him to be able to instruct them. God loved his people so much that he would use this man Moses to be able to give them the commandments. They would have to regard those commandments, hearken unto those commandments and keep all of those things. When you think about on the Mount Sinai, when Moses would be given those tablets of stone over in Exodus, the 20th chapter, you would think that God is putting his people in a place to be able to receive the proper instruction and correction that they need. He's preparing them for a time when they're going to go into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. He's preparing his people for a promise, and he's preparing them to be able to receive What he has for them over time. You remember what would happen. The children of Israel pretty much right as they get out of Egypt receive this testimony receive this law. The children of Israel were in the wilderness for about 40 years. You would see in the second law when Moses would remind them of all the things that he commanded them before You would see that he would explain to them, remember all of those things. Keep that in mind when you go in the way of the Gentiles, which God is going to drive out before your face. You need to remember all the things that I have commanded you. But when you think about the degradation of the Israelite nation, when you think about all the things that were going on because of the idolatry, starting with what Jeroboam would have set up. And Dan and and Bethel setting up those golden calves. When you think about how the children of Israel would go after that wickedness of idolatry. You would get to a time where Judah would be all alone. Judah being the last tribe that was following after the way of the Lord. That brings us to a time where Jeremiah was prophesying. This man Jeremiah was prophesying and you might remember in the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, you remember that this man Jeremiah was prophesying, but he was also lamenting the death of this righteous king, Josiah. Nevertheless, not to read the entirety of the book of Lamentations to you, we go to Lamentations, the fifth chapter. and Lamentations, the fifth chapter, and we remember, we remember Jeremiah's lament, and we remember that he's beseeching the Lord to be able to restore his people, to be able to bring them back To the beauty that they once had. We go to Lamentations, the fifth chapter. We'll do a little bit of reading. Where it says, remember, O Lord, in verse number one, what is come upon us? Consider and behold our reproach or our shame. Our inheritance is turned to strangers. Our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless and our mothers are as widows. We have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. Our necks are under persecution and we labor and have no rest. We have given to the hand of the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Think about it. When you think about the children in the wilderness being provided for with that manna that came from heaven, being provided for with that quail. They didn't have to spend money on any of those things. They didn't have to bargain for their daily bread. God provided it. This puts in proper perspective of now where Judah and Jerusalem are. They are in such a way that for whatever meal that they have, they have to buy it. Whatever drink of water they have, they have to have it sold unto them. As we continue to read. It says in verse number seven, our fathers have sinned and we and are not rather. We have borne their iniquities. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that does deliver us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. They ravish the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. Princes are hanged up by their hand and the faces of elders were not honored. They took young men to grind and the children fell under the wood. The elders have ceased from the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart is ceased and our dance is turned into the morning. But look at this. We start to get some insight at how radiant and how royal and how beautiful the children of Israel once were. Look at here at Lamentations, the fifth chapter, verse number 16. It says, The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For the things are our eyes dim, or our eyes are dim. Because the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore, dost you forget us forever and forsake us so long? Turn thou unto us, or unto thee, O Lord. Turn us unto thee, that we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. Through this lamentation. Through what Jeremiah is pinning. He's explaining that the children of Israel were once in a primal position. The children of Israel once had a beauty. The children of Israel once had a crown given to them. Because they were following after the way of the Lord. Over the time. They would put on idolatry. They would do things that were against what God had intended for them. And because of that. They would go into a Babylonian captivity. Because of that, they would serve with the various rigors other nations. Gentiles would reign over them and they would no longer have that beauty. When we think about these principles, it's not so far-fetched, especially us in our Christian lives. When we think about the beauty of first putting on Christ, when we think about how, according to Revelation, the first chapter, verses 5 and 6, Six, Christ who died for us, Christ who shed his blood for us, has made us to be kings and priests. When we think about our position there, we think about our ability to wear that crown. Nevertheless, as Paul would state in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, we need to be very diligent that we're laboring for that crown that is not corruptible, but that is incorruptible. Familiar with God's people here in Lamentations, the fifth chapter, how at one point in time, God had given them a crown, but it had fallen from their head. According to verse 16, we need to never let that crown fall from our head as Christians. We need to never lose sight of what we can be given in heaven's eternal glory. We're going to discuss just for a little bit of time of how we are to obtain that crown. Perhaps you remember what James would say in James, the first chapter. Go with me there really quickly. In James, the first chapter. We're looking at what the Lord's brother would write. In James, the first chapter. We're addressing this idea of what we ought to do in order to be able to receive that crown. In James, the first chapter we see in verse number 12. Blessed in the man. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them. That love him. Then he goes into the inner pinnings of temptation. In verse 13 he says. Let no man say when he is tempted. I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt he any man. But every man that is tempted. When he is drawn away of his own lust. And he is enticed. When the lust has conceived. It bringeth forth sin. And sin when it is finished. It brings forth death. None of us should be able to say. That this is ordained of God. None of of us should be able to say. That oh when. Uh, Sin brings forth death. That's of God. No, God cannot be tempted with any evil. It is when we are drawn away of our own lust. Nevertheless, we see in verse number 12, somewhat of an insight to the blueprint of how we need to be leading our Christian lives. We need not to be riddled with sin. Don't play with that stuff. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. Oh, maybe it's not a death that you see on a sin that you committed on Monday. You don't see it on Tuesday. It's a slow death. Sometimes the worst death is a slow death. Perhaps you'll think about cancer. Perhaps you'll think about anything that just slowly decays over time. Nevertheless, when it's the death to what would happen to us because of our misgivings and our own transgressions, we need not to be partakers in it. And verse number 12 We see very clearly, blessed is the man that endures temptation. We have to endure, brethren. We have to be able to endure temptation. There's going to be some trials. It says, for when he is tried, he will receive a crown of life. We'll get a little bit more insight in it. Don't you remember in the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, we get this vision that John is speaking about. This vision of the Son of Man speaking to the seven churches. We'll see here in Revelation, you'll see many of the issues... With the churches that John is speaking about as he gets from this vision. Writes first to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, the second chapter. This is the son of man speaking to the angel of the church. in Ephesus says in verse number two of Revelation two, it says, I know thy works and your labor and your patience, how you cannot bear them, which are evil. And you have tried them, which say that they are apostles and have and are not and found them to be liars But you see in verse number four, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love. First and foremost, church, we need not to leave our first love. We need not to leave the doctrine of Christ. We need not to leave that instruction and we ought to be able to receive that correction that he has given us. We'll see some issues with the church in Smyrna. Where according to Revelation, the second chapter, verse number nine, the Bible would say, I know thy works, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews, but they are not. And they are of the synagogue of Satan. Sometimes these churches have something going right for them. But a lot of times there's something still that God would have against them. We continue on. We remember the church of Pergamum, right? In verse number 12, it says, I know thy works. In verse number 13, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. You holdest fast my name. And has not denied my faith, even in the days wherein Antipas was a faithful martyr and was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But again, in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because thou hast there with them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat those things sacrificed to idols. Over and over, he's explaining some of the things that are going well with these churches, but he's also explaining the things that he has against them. Go back in your time and read. But for the sake of time, let's go really quickly to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation, the third chapter. In Revelation, the third chapter, we pick up at verse number seven. And we remember what the Son of Man would be saying to this church in Philadelphia. In Revelation, the third chapter, verse number seven, he says, And the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy and he is true, and he hath the key of David, and he openeth and no man shutteth, and he shutteth and no man can open it. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and has not denied my name. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, but they are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before my feet, or thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. But as we read in verse 10 and 11, we get some insight. Specifically, into how we can receive this crown or maintain the crown given to us. It says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all of the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast, which thou hast, that no man takes thy crown. Need to hold fast. That which the Lord has committed to us. He's committed us his word. He's committed us his son Christ Jesus. He's given us the ability to not only receive his son. Receive the words that were given to his son. Receive the proper instruction and correction. According to his word. And we have to hold fast. So that no man can take our crown. We see in verses 12 it says him that overcomes. I will make him to be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. I will write it upon him my new name. He that has a here, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. When we think about the church of Philadelphia, when we think about this crown that was given We see how that crown can be maintained. Certainly Paul is discussing that we need to fight for that crown that is incorruptible, that is in heaven, that fades not away. But we see how we ought to maintain that crown. James would give us some insight in James, the first chapter at number 12. Being able to endure temptation. I get it. It's hard sometimes. Sometimes the friends that we ought not to be having in the first place are running to every corner of the earth to do God knows what. Things that God has not ordained. But you need to take the proper inventory of your own lives and figure out if that's for you. You need to do that and synchronize it with the word of God. And realize what God has for you. All of those things that your friends are running to do, they're just quick fixes. Perhaps for a little bit of time, it will feel pleasurable. Perhaps for a little bit of time, it will bring you joy. But the true joy will come from the crown that fades not away in heaven's eternal glory. We remember what Paul writes to Timothy. And second Timothy, the fourth chapter, second Timothy, the fourth chapter, we go when Paul is writing to Timothy, Paul is staring death right in its face. Paul realizes he's getting ready to depart, not depart to go to Rome again, not depart to go to some city. He get, he's getting ready to die. And second Timothy, the fourth chapter, if you would just turn there with me, look at how Paul and let's look at the mindset of Paul as he's getting ready to face death. In second Timothy, the fourth chapter You might see and you might remember what he would be writing to Timothy. He would say in verse 6, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight of faith. We're getting insight in what it takes. We're getting insight in what we must endure. We're getting insight on how we can maintain our crown. Look at what Paul says. I fought the good fight of faith. I have finished my course And I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only to me, but to all them that love his appearing. Because we're looking for that great and notable day. Because we're focused on that appearing of the Lord from heaven. Because we're so focused on living our lives acceptable to God, being able to receive his instruction, being able to receive his correction, being able to receive his son, Christ Jesus, who he sent into this world. Because we're so focused on that, we can receive that crown. That crown's not going to be taken away by any man. That crown was promised to us before the world began. And that crown, most importantly, will not fade away in heaven's eternal glory. It's not a crown that is going to get dusty, It's not a crown that you got to take over to the jeweler to get polished and shine every once in a while. My wife gave me a beautiful wedding ring. Beautiful, beautiful wedding ring. But with all the nicks and things that I do during the day and bump up against walls and all that stuff, the wedding ring, it starts to get nicks. It starts to chip away. But think about that crown that we have laid up for us in heaven's eternal glory that will never, ever fade away. Church, in order for us to attain that, In order for us to obtain that. We need to be familiar with Christ. We need to be familiar with the crown that he has. If we think about what Revelation, the first chapter, verse number five and six says, how he washed us in his blood and he's made us to be kings and priests. If this man through his death was able to make us to be kings and priests, then who do you think this man is? Is he not a king himself? Is he not the chief priest himself able to do that for us? When we think about his suffering, we might take you back to John, the 19th chapter. In order for us, if I were to give you a proposition for this lesson, in order for us to obtain that crown, which is laid up for us, we must be familiar with his crown. And I'm not talking the crown in John, the 19th chapter, while he was suffering, while he was preparing to go to the cross, understanding that he had to go to the cross. You might remember in John, the 19th chapter, verse number one and two. They plated a crown of thorns on his head. Think about this. A lot of times we we certainly put in proper minds and in proper perspective the cross of Christ Jesus. But think about this. Someone hates you so much that they're going to fix a crown of thorns hurting their own selves. I don't know how many of you have put your hand in a rose bush. I don't know how many of you have been down in the desert terrain and felt some of those crown and those prickly Types of things that you can rock together. Someone took the time to make a crown of thorns because they hated a man so much, having to shed their own blood to be able to fixate this thing to put it on a man's head. They beat him. They placed this crown in his skull. They mocked him, this son of God. Who were they were? They were supposed to just receive. They were supposed to just endure the instruction. They were simply supposed to just. Hearken the correction and abide by it. But they didn't receive him. This crown of thorns was placed into his skull. According to John, the 19th chapter, verse number one. Imagine how sick you would have to be to create that for someone else. They mocked him. They spat on him. They put a reed in his right hand. They treated him and mockingly as a king saying, hail king of the Jews. They put him on Calvary's cross. After they had given him a purple robe. Stripped him from his clothing. And given him a purple robe. Not because they believed he was a king. But they were mocking the fact. Of who he was. They placed railroad spikes. In his hand. They hung him up. On a wooden cross. For the entire world to see. That shame. Just think about that. How cruel these individuals, these individuals that God loved so much, these individuals that according to Romans, the third chapter, verse number one, that were in the best advantage because the oracles of God were committed to the Jewish brethren. They were committed to the Israelites. They were in the best place to be able to receive the son, but they refused him. They hung him up on a cross for six hours as he was there asphyxiating. He was there trying to pull himself up to breathe. Shedding his blood for you and for me. He did that. Proposition is in order for us to obtain that crown in heaven's eternal glory, we must be familiar with his crown. Not that crown of thorns, that wicked crown of thorns that he put on his head. But the fact that as Peter was preaching that wonderful gospel sermon in acts the second chapter, as those individuals would stop him asking as this message would prick them in their own consciences. Men and brethren, what must we do? He said, repent every last one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But this same man before that in Acts 2.36, this same Christ, who you crucified, the Lord has raised up to be both Christ and Messiah. To be ruler. Ruler, making reference to the fact that he has a kingdom and it's a kingdom without end. This man, Christ Jesus, we ought to be able to receive. This man, Christ Jesus, we ought to be able to receive because of the promises associated with that. Believing on his name. According to John, the first chapter, verse number 12, we have the power to be. The sons of God. In order for us to receive that crown in heaven's eternal glory, we must be able to endure temptation. We must be able to hold fast what you've been taught according to the scriptures. We must be able to hold fast and keep in memory what Christ did for you. We must be able to be faithful until the end. In order for us to receive Christ, we have to hear the word of God. Not only hear the word of God, we have to hear the gospel. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. How he came into this world to do good. He came into this world to fulfill the will of God. And fulfilling the will of God, he finished the work by going to the cross. Hanging, bleeding, and dying on our behalf. After he expired, he is brought down from that cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was buried according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 4 will explain that. He was buried according to the scriptures. And that's not the end of the story because he was risen on the third day. You don't have to believe my words. You believe the scriptures. Believe the scriptures of the prophets. We are just studying in Romans, the 15th chapter. Romans, the 15th chapter, specifically at verse number four. This man, Christ Jesus, those things, rather, that was written a four times. But Romans, the 15th chapter, specifically at verse number eight, this minister of the circumcision in Christ Jesus, he came to confirm the word of the prophets. He, com- he confirmed the word of the prophets and how he suffered. Remember Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, that suffering servant? That suffering servant, by his stripes we are healed. That suffering servant that was going to, his grave was going to be made with the rich. That suffering servant who like a lamb led to the slaughter. As a sheep before the shearers is dumb, he opened up his mouth, not a word. The same man, Christ Jesus, was going to die on our behalf. But through his suffering, he would be able to give life to all that would believe on his name. Not only life to all that believe on his name. But a blueprint to how we ought to act and how we ought to live in this world and hope of that crown of righteousness that is laid up for us in heaven's eternal glory. The same way he was brought back from the grave from his father is the same way we, too, will be brought back from the grave to never die again. This man, Christ Jesus, is right now at the right hand of God. He ever liveth, according to Hebrews, the seventh chapter, verse number 25, to make it intercession for us. So when we offer up our spiritual sacrifices, they can be acceptable to God because we have one interceding on our behalf. When we offer up our prayers, we're not praying in vain. We're not praying to some idol. We're not praying to anything outside of what God has explained to us. And we ought to offer up our prayers to God the Father. They're acceptable by that man, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we have to hear this gospel and we have to believe what Christ has done for us. We have to believe on his name. After we've heard, after we believe, we must ask, what do we need to do in order to be saved? That's the same thing that Philip was reasoning to the Ethiopian eunuch about in Acts, the eighth chapter. That's the same thing those men and brethren asked in Acts, the second chapter. Men and brethren, what must we do? They're talking about salvation. How can we put ourselves in the proper position so we know assuredly that there is a crown laid up for us? What must we do in order to be saved? We have to hear the gospel and we have to believe. That's what Acts, the fifteen chapter, verse number seven would say. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Romans 10, verses nine and 10. And with the mouth, confession is made. You don't have to confess everything you've done wrong. You don't have to confess every thought that you have done wrong. You simply need to confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You believe that he got up from the grave. You have to come repenting of your sins. All those things that are amiss, that fornication, that uncleanness, the drunkenness, all of those things, those works of the flesh, put that stuff away. We see in James the 1st chapter the end of sin is death. Let's not play with this stuff. Repent of those things and bring forth fruits meet or worthy of repentance. Because we're changing our mind, we're deciding to change our actions no longer being easily beset by that weight of sin that does easily beset us. We're laying that aside. According to Hebrews the 12th chapter of verse number 2, not being entangled in those things anymore. Those snares of the devil. Romans, the sixth chapter and verse number one says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is God forbid. We need to repent of those things that we were doing amiss. We need to find what the word of God says. We need to do it all the days of our life. We have to hear the gospel. We have to believe it. We have to come repenting of our sins. We have to come confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we go down in the watery grave of baptism. Why baptism? Because according to first Peter, the third chapter, verses 20 and 21 when Peter is explaining the light figure of the flood, he's saying baptism does now also saved us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it's an answer of the good conscience towards God. I don't care who you study with. You can't get around that. It's baptism that does now save. According to Colossians, the second chapter, verse number 11, it's a circumcision made without hands. Not the circumcision of the flesh anymore, but it's a circumcision made without hands. Buried with him, according to Colossians, the second chapter in verse number twelve, in baptism, we have to be baptized into his death. Romans six three. We have to put on Christ. Galatians 3, 27. And baptism is where we get access to his blood. Hebrews the tenth chapter verses twenty through twenty two would explain. With the true heart and full assurance of faith, we have our heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. How is our heart sprinkled from an evil conscience? Well, it's through the blood of Christ, the blood of his. Cross, the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross, he shed for all of us and having our bodies washed with pure water. They're one and the same. They work together. We must be baptized, baptized into his one church, not into the church of Joe Blow, not into the church of Joe Smith, not into the church of any other man, but the church that you can find in your Bible. That's why we so boldly call ourselves members of the church of Christ. Church is just a word in the Greek called Ekklesia. Means called out individuals that belong to Christ. We're not belong to Calvinism. We're not belong to Presbyterianism. We're not belong to anything that man created. But we're belonging to the one church that has no end. It's that church that you can find in your Bible. That is what we must do. And according to Revelation, the second chapter. Many times I read it quickly. But let's go to Revelation, the second chapter. And we'll drive this message home. In verse number 10. The Bible would say just this about this crown in Revelation, the second chapter at verse number 10, about this endurance, about this trial. In Revelation, the second chapter at verse number 10, the Bible would say, For none of these or those things which you shall suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. If the Lord promised it, let's believe the Lord's going to deliver on it. It may not be on our timeline. It may not be according to our clocks, but if the Lord said he was going to do something, he's going to do it. He's going to give us a crown of life if we're just faithful unto death. All things are ready. I believe that's the song of invitation. All things are ready. What do I mean by that? There's an invitation to obey the gospel message. You obey the gospel message by hearing that word, believing on it, doing the requisite things you need to do and going down in the watery grave of baptism. In that watery grave of baptism, that's where you have the remission of sins. That's to say that God is not remembering the sin against you anymore. We can live lives. We can endure the suffering, endure the temptation, and we can be faithful unto death. Let us do that. All things are ready. The water is warm enough. You can go down in that watery grave of baptism. Come up out of that water. We won't leave you in there. Having all your sins remitted, and we can call you brethren. We can call you brethren for the rest of our lives. Let us together stand and sing the Savior's invitation.